Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal of this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, I have the honor to have as my guest, Dr. David Matsumoto. He is an expert in deception. Welcome, Dr. Matsumoto, to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. And I am, I myself am honored and humbled uh, to be speaking with you. And thank you and your, your audience for all the things that you guys and, and women are doing out there to uh, keep things straight. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I want to start with uh, some of the myths that are out there in deception detection. Now, you mentioned right before the call here, right before the interview, that you work for the Bureau, the FBI, for 13 years. And there was an article there on myths around deception detection. So can you kind of give us some examples here to the audience? Because there, there are a lot of things that people believe that are not true. Well, you're exactly right that people, there's a lot of things that people believe that are not true or not have been validated in science or in the field. And that's the way I look at things. You know, um, I, I talk about behavioral indicators of mental states and deception in terms of whether they've been validated by science and vetted in the field or not. So that's my lens about how to understand things. Um, and when you go, when you think, talk about the myths of, of this topic, yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of them. And I got to tell you, there's, as I was thinking about this interview before we started, you know, I had to prioritize because there's so many of them. And I, I think I'll start with two or maybe three. I'm not sure, but here's them. Here's one, right. That leads to the second one, which is people believe that you can, that there's some one behavior that always is indicative of deception. So all one has to do is go to the source of all uninformed, not all, much uninformed opinion, which is called the internet, and go and Google or whatever your search engine is, this topic, and everybody will say, well, they scratched their nose. Oh, they looked away. Oh, they, or they, uh, it's the steeple. I, I can't even do it because I'm getting too old and my, my hands are, yeah, never mind. Anyway, um, so the belief is, or the myth is, that there's this one behavior that that you can, that if the person does it, ah, they're lying. And the truth of the matter is, that's never been uh, demonstrated in science. It's never been vetted in the field in a in a consistent, systematic way. And so there's a big myth about that that concept, which leads to the second one, which is more specific. The one behavior that people often say is a is a is a reliable consistent sign of lying is looking away when you're talking or answering the question so somebody will be answering like john will be as, asking me the question so tell me about the myths and i go oh well you know those myths and it must be all oh, that matsumoto guy he must be lying and in fact um that that hypothesis that looking away is a oh, here i did touch my nose right i must be lying to you now that looking away is a sign of lying has been tested in many studies, and it's um, almost never been found to be true. I have never found that to be true. And if you talk to most people who are astute observers or professional interviewers, they also don't don't believe that. However, I hear I still hear it, and I also still see that in training of individuals whose jobs it is to determine deception, and so. It's a problem. Right? It's a huge myth out there that looking away when answering a question is a sign of lying. 
And in fact, there's been research, there's been published studies that have demonstrated that that myth is believed by people around the world. And so, Wait. so there's data across cultures that show that many people around the world think that that's true. And then there's recent data that demonstrates that liars also know that. And so those liars, when they're talking to somebody, will actually look at the interviewer more when they're answering the question to compensate for the myth that's in their head, right? So anyway, that's the big one. I, I, um, that, that people looking around would, um, when they're answering a question, is, that's, that's a form of deception. That's, I would not make that uh, linkage between that behavior and that interpretation like that. Yeah, really good, really good. That's that's a big one. Those those two are, are are big ones. So my second question here, which now may be an unfair question based on what you just told me, because there's not one indicator yep. of uh, deception. But if you if there is one, you know, if 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 there are like true deception uh, detection techniques. What are the best ones that are out there right now? Knowing that's not going to be 100% sure. uh, true yeah. all the time, yeah. but uh, what are some of the best techniques out there? First of all, let me say that it's, it's difficult. Detecting deception is difficult. And let me look, take a little tangent on this, okay? Because I happen to believe that humans are wired not to be able to know um, that when people, that what people are truly fe thinking and feeling most of the time. Uh, I happen to believe that humans have evolved not to know that, and, and that societies today and forever have required some degree of blindness to what everybody else is thinking and feeling. And that's necessary for human societies to function. I mean, if you just think about it, um, if we knew what everybody else was thinking and feeling all the time, nothing would work, right? Nothing will work. Uh, worker organizations would not exist. Recreational organizations would not exist. Marriage would not exist. Nothing exists if we always knew what's going on all the time. And so it makes sense to me that we're, 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 we've got this bias. We, and we're, I think we're wired to have a truth bias, to tell you the truth. And actually, there's a lot of data that demonstrates that when people are making determinations of veracity or deception, there is a truth bias in those judgments. And I think that's one of the reasons why. But there are people who are in professions who... Uh, you know, most of society would want to be better, like auditors and other people who are trying to ferret out fraud, right? Because fraud is not good for all of us, other people who are trying to be honest in our lives because everybody pays a price for those kinds of things and many other things. So what do we do? <clears throat> here's, here's, here's a multi-pronged reply to your answer. Deception cues do exist. They can come, come at us either verbally or non-verbally. In the, in the, in the words, they can be in different ways, right? They can be in inconsistencies in speech, whether a person goes off some extraneous topic or not, whether they're they're doing something to really try to convince you that something like that, which would be which would be um, demonstrated by certain types of adverbs and things like that. <clears throat> so there's linguistic and grammatical features of speech, and then there's the nonverbal. Within the nonverbal, there's face, voice, gesture, body posture, and everything else we do there. The problem is that the, that deception cues occur. And there's a lot of research that has shown that they, they occur, but they occur multimodally across multiple channels and they're not fixed. So in response, this, I'm taking a long way to say, in response to your question, what should, what should practitioners do? It's to number one, to know that. Get trained on 
Number two, get trained on validated indicators, both verbal and nonverbal. Because if you want to be good, you gotta you kind of have to know the constellation, right? It's not it's not going to be always this one thing. And the third, um, observe. You know, we've always heard active listening, right? Which is important. My suggestion is always on top of that active observation. Make sure we're observing when we're listening. I see a lot of great uh, interviewers like got their head in in a in a, in a um, you know their notes because they got to track what questions they got and they miss a lot of data. And so I think there's active observation about that as well. And then fourth, I, you know, I'm just rambling off here. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Get all the facts lined up. Talk about, you know, do all the prep that you need to know. Strategize your interviews and do all, all those kinds of things. And so it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to do this. I mean, experience is great. And there's a lot of great people who, in, um, what do I want to say, um, can do all of that just through their on-the-job training over the last 20 years. But I see a lot of people with a lot of on-the-job training as well who latch onto things because they think they work, but in fact they don't. You know, and so um, anyway, that's that's what I think. I think it's um, know that these things are occurring multimodally, both verbally and non-verbally. Learn what's been validated and vetted in the field, active observation as well as listening, and prepare. Yes, very good. Not only active listening, which you know auditors should be listening, right? Because that's where the word comes from. Yep. to listen, but yep. active observing. That's a great, yep. great point. Yep. Last question for you here, Dr. Matsumoto. I want to just say this before I ask the question. I'm not asking this because I want auditors to deceive anyone, <laughs> but on the flip side, auditors, we want to build trust with stakeholders. What are some of the techniques that auditors can use to build more trust with their stakeholders? Yeah, great. Great question. Great question. And I think that's true for um, all effective interviewers in almost every field that I know. It's building what you call trust. Let me, let me give a different spin on that, okay? I actually think that what you're wanting to build is perceived trustworthiness in the other person. That they want, you want them to perceive you as trustworthy. Um, because whether you trust the other person is not, is, is not the question, to tell you the truth. It's you want them, you want to facilitate in your interaction a way for them to perceive that you are a trustworthy person. And so I have a little different spin on, on, that, on that topic right there because trust and trustworthiness are two different things. And, and we don't need to get into that, but uh, because they're two different things, I, I want to be for myself technically correct to myself. So how do we do that? I, I think the number one thing is um, have, a, have an, an attitude of being authentic and genuine respecting your interviewee or put it differently, expressing behaviors and words that, that portray respect, whatever's in your mind, right? Because listen, I, I get it. People who are dealing with fraud, there may be people you talk to that you just can't respect as a person, but all of us have to put it on the side. And if you want to build that perceived trustworthiness, I think we need to come off as authentic and genuine and at least in that context, um, be engaged in respectful behaviors, respecting the person's time, space, boundaries, boundaries of what they want to talk about, at least at first, right? And to navigate what I call the trial balloons of trust that they will give you. Because I think all interviewees give us trial balloons of trust by talking about little things and watching how we're reacting, right? 
and and I think it's giving respect, non-judgmental listening. I think is huge, and um, again, expressing non-judgmental listening. I I get it. A lot of people, myself included, judge a lot of people and their behavior. I got I got that. But when we're working, we want to express non-judgmental listening, and so I think it's this constellation of authentic authenticity, genuineness, respect, and non-judgmental listening that fosters um, that perceived perceptions of trustworthiness and navigating all those trial balloons of trust that they float at us in a good way so that over time in the interview, the trial balloons that they're floating to us get bigger and bigger and more on target with what we want to talk about. Love it. Love it. Being non-judgmental. I think that's that's huge, right? Because oh, yeah. if you're talking to someone and you know the person instantly can tell that you're judging him or her, they're going to... Oh, gonna, yeah. And that's true for close. anybody, right? Yeah. That's true for anybody. It's like genuine human nature. I mean, I, I you know, and I think good in, in interviewers can be talking with, you know, in my world, it's like people talk with some others who are just, I mean, they're engaging evil acts. But when they're in the interview room to not come off like that, I mean, if you come off like that, then not, you know, nothing happens, right? Right. Um, but yeah, so so I think it's, I think that's a good constellation of of attitude to to have. Yes, absolutely. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, Doctor Matsumoto. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, it's it's an honor to be with you, and good luck with everybody in all of your work. Get those yes. thoughts. Yes, absolutely. 